I just love setting my telescope up on the bike path and I, you know, one of my favorite sounds before the pandemic was the screeching of bike tires as somebody realized there was a telescope to look through and pulled over to come, to come look. Oh my gosh, when M51 shows up on your computer screen and it's the first thing you've ever taken a picture of in the sky, I literally jumped out of my seat. I'm really interested in trying to leverage that fascination that astronomy has for people into understanding science. Um, that's sort of one of my missions in life. <laughs> so in these astronomy research seminars that we teach, we really are teaching how science is done. Um, and so, and then hopefully that spreads to more than just astronomy, but you know, so that we have a scientifically literate populace. Rachel Reed is our guest today, an avid amateur astronomer, a scientist, and professional educator who's dedicating herself to helping people with a passion for astronomy to get into science and improve science literacy. So let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. So, Rachel Freed... Welcome to our Humble Podcast. I'm so glad you were able to make it today. And I was wondering if we could start this out by maybe uh, giving us or giving our listeners a brief introduction into, you, into who you are and what you're doing, uh, because I've been reading about you in preparation for this podcast, and i got to say it's very exciting. So give us an introduction into who you are. All right. Well, I'm so excited to be here. So thanks for asking. Um, I love talking about this stuff. So I've actually been an amateur astronomer for more than 20 years now. Um, and, and I would say one of my favorite things on earth to do is astronomy outreach and education. And the last really six years of my life have been uh, dedicated to working with students and teachers around the country and around the world to get students involved in doing real simple astronomical research and learning how to communicate their research through writing published papers and giving presentations at scientific meetings. Um, so I do a ton of outreach. Uh, I, I worked for the Astronomical Society of the Pacific for a while. I co-founded the Institute for Student Astronomical Research, which I hope we can talk about more because I love it. Um, and I just love setting my telescope up on the bike path. And I, you know, one of my favorite sounds before the pandemic was the screeching of bike tires as somebody realized there was a telescope to look through and pulled over to come, to come look. Um, oh, good. They weren't like swerving to get out of the, you know, to, no, to I was off, okay. off the side of the path, but I'd be like, Hey, want to look at Venus? And they'd, you know, screech and turn around and <laughs> come back. So, um, so, um, and yeah, that's a little bit about what I do. They, uh, I get this. This hobby is so. Every time we talk to someone uh, about who, how they got into the hobby or what are the things they, they enjoy doing, that is always in the top five things that people love to yeah. do. Is just set up a telescope somewhere and show other people through the yeah. eyepiece. Yeah. What is it that you? What is it that you find so 
so fascinating about it, Rachel, that, that you want to do that. that when you want to spend your time making people slam on the brakes to come look <laughs> through a telescope. Like, what is it? Because we ask this question to just about everybody that comes on because everybody, like Tony just said, everybody has that same love for sharing this. But what is it that you find so appealing about that, bringing it out, setting it up and letting people look through it? What gives you so much satisfaction in that? That is such a great question. And, and I've tried to understand that. I, I don't really know, except to say that ever since I was a kid, which I know you hear all the time, um, I had this intrinsic love of learning about stars and galaxies and, you know, anything related to, to space. Well, not really anything, you know, space travel is cool because we, you know, learn much and from our spacecraft and whatnot, but, but just learning about how stars form and supernova explosions and, all, everything, you know, astrophysical, it's just always had this intrinsic draw for me. And I learned a while ago that I, I sort of get this huge burst of energy from sharing that. And I don't know why it's astronomy. And it's really interesting because um, my son has the same thing, but it's for snakes. And he always asks me like, why do I love snakes so much? And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know, but it's the same reason I love astronomy so much. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know either. I'm terrified of snakes. So I would not be able <laughs> to answer to that question. That's Yeah. <laughs> you <laughs> cannot come snakes visit me then. I was going to say, you can't come visit me. We have six snakes in my son's bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would be terrified. Just knowing that they exist in the state that I live in scares me. <laughs> you know, so... Uh, they're they're yeah. not not my animals. Dustin will not visit me in uh, Florida because of it too. You have you have things far. You have actual yeah. dinosaurs in Florida. I'm not coming. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I will not visit the Everglades. <laughs> I took my son to Florida just before the pandemic um, for some conferences, and 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 yeah, we looked at snakes. We spent some time at a couple days at the I think it's called the Vivarium. So many snakes. Um, anyway. Uh, but I, I yeah. just love astronomy. <laughs> yeah. Well, that is a good question, though. Why do we love the things we love? I mean, that is right. that is something that I think would be a more a philosophical question than anything else. Yeah. Maybe it's genetic. Yeah. I, it's hard to say. But why do we love the things that we love? And and when we when we're I think the passion that we have for whatever this hobby is, or in our case, amateur astronomy, we can't help but share it with others. And I'm sure your son's the same way with snakes. People so could probably true. talk for hours about snakes. He right? does. And, he does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, um, and it, it's yeah. interesting too, that you never meet astronomer. Like you're excited about this, Rachel. You can tell your, your excitement is contagious, right. right? Just hearing you talk about it, I can tell, and it gets me all amped up to talk about it because right. I can tell how much, you love it and it comes out and you see that with astronomers more than you do i would say more than i see it with most other things it's like people that are into astronomy are into astronomy right. and that sharing is part of that excitement and that's why i always ask that question is just like it's so interesting that it's not enough to just be in love with this exploration it's also the, like the, the thing that really caps it off is then sharing it after the fact. And people spend a lot of time and energy doing that, yourself included. So so you just mentioned the observatory that you, you work with. Can you kind of dig into that a little more? So tell me about this observatory. 
Yeah. So it's the Robert Ferguson Observatory in Kenwood, California. So it's in Sonoma County. And um, it's been around since 1995. And they have three uh, telescopes. And they, before the pandemic, they, you know, had monthly star parties and you could rent the observatory. And, you know, when you rented the observatory, it came with us volunteer docents to teach you stuff. But um, they have a 40 inch telescope that was designed and built by these four volunteers over a 12 year period. And it just blows me away the dedication and the passion that amateur astronomers have for their field. How we, we love sharing it, and we, some of us love building telescopes for twelve years. Um, but looking through a forty inches, yeah, yeah, a one meter telescope. Do people just so people anyone can just go look through this? Yeah. Yeah. So we have public star parties. Well, we used to. Uh, We will again when the (laughs) pandemic's whatever. Um, And you can just come up to the observatory and and look through the 40 inch. And it's incredible, of course. Um, And then we also have a a 20 inch RC on uh, astrophysics mount. So we, you know, can take amazing pictures of things. Oh my gosh. The first time I ever took a picture was at the observatory. It was when we had actually a C14 on a, a paramount uh, me, but, uh, oh my gosh, when M51 shows up on your computer screen and it's the first thing you've ever taken a picture of in the sky, I literally jumped out of my seat. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And especially if you're shooting it with a half meter RC, you know, on a perfectly tracking AP mount, I can imagine what you're seeing is probably it's like a pod quality right out of the camera. <laughs> it seems like it. It's so exciting. So, yeah, and, you know, I, that's kind yeah. of that's kind of where we are anyway in the hobby. It seems like more and more people are getting that kind of experience with with I won't I won't say lesser equipment, but equipment that isn't as as state of the art as what you just outlined. People are being able to set up smaller scopes, rather modest scopes and, and computers and cameras and get that same effect these days. Uh, wouldn't yeah. you agree? I mean, oh, yeah, it, it's amazing. We, we talk about this all the time on this podcast. Imagers is like, you know, it's getting into the hobby. The, the, um, the, the, the barriers have never been lower really. Right, right, right. It's really great. And I don't know if you guys know, I'm um, on the board of the advanced imaging conference. Um, and so I know a lot of those imagers and see what they do. And of course they're very experienced and have really amazing equipment. Like, um, Adam block and Richard Wright and yeah. all them. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's got to yeah. be very interesting conversations now then, because, um, uh, I mean, with coronavirus, it's like everything, oh. especially those kind of things. It's like, you can't, you have to, you have to rebuild it from the ground up. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're trying to plan for, you know, October 8th through 10th or something this year for our conference. And, you know, when we first started planning six months ago, it was like, oh, sure. By October of next year, everything's going to be fine. And now we're like, oh, yeah. uh-uh. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's Well, everybody tricky. thought this was going to be two weeks, and then two right. turned to four, and here we are. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We are. Redefining really the world. <laughs> right, right, right. But you know what I will say? I mean, the the hobby – well, as you guys know, I've heard it on your podcasts. You know, the hobby has really increased in terms of the number of people buying telescopes or pulling them out of their, you know, storage units and calling for help to the, you know, the telescope manufacturer. Um, you know, since the pandemic, it's really – a lot of people have – have joined in the hobby. It's something we can do isolated from home, unfortunately. But also, you know, so many, I belong to five astronomy clubs. Um, that's that's a fun story too. But um, they, they're- You're not busy at all. 
<laughs> right. But they're all trying to, <laughs> right, right. They're all trying to figure out, um, you know, how can we, how can we reach our audiences? How can we still stay involved with everyone? And, you know, and, and it's all possible with the technology we have with the Zooms and the Skypes and the whatnots. And I've actually done, um, with, with the Robert Ferguson Observatory, we had a live show one night. I did some uh, live spectroscopy uh, because I can, you know, I have a little uh, diffraction uh, star analyzer that I got from Tom Field, you know, from uh, RSpec and set up the little CCD camera and did a little spectroscopy live on Zoom for the audience. I mean, so there's, we have all the technology to, to still do this hobby. And, you know, we were talking about um, astronomers and, and just doing outreach and how excited everybody is for, for talking about this stuff. Another area where that is really uh, evidenced itself is in social media in general and using technology. Now, yeah. most professional astronomers have Twitter accounts and, and YouTube channels and, and uh, Twitch, um, you know, Twitch channels where they're streaming their careers, yeah. <laughs> essentially, to people who want to watch. Yeah, yeah. And, and so it's, uh, the technology is most definitely there. Never before has it been more accessible to more people. So that's, you know, this is golden age of amateur astronomy yeah. for sure. Well, it's yeah. really interesting that if you think about it, you have before the pandemic, you have everybody actively, myself included, Tony, I know you, and obviously Rachel, you've been doing this for a while, trying to get everybody to love and see what you love and see. And yeah. um, we were all actively doing that in person, going out and trying to really just champion this hobby for people. And now that the pandemic hit, we can't do that. You can't just go out and comfortably, you know, just go have a large gathering, invite people out right. because it's, you know, irresponsible to do so. But the hobby has spread more through that than it ever had before. Right. It's really right. this upside down equation. I mean, <laughs> we have more people doing it now with less human interaction, or I shouldn't say interaction because it's happening digitally, but, you know, face-to-face -face interaction than it ever has before. And we're achieving the goal that all of us have set out to, to achieve, you know, to share this message. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's really interesting that along these same lines. Um, so I, you know, I teach these astronomy research seminars to high school students and teachers and community college and university students and teachers. And it was really interesting because um, when the pandemic hit, uh, a lot of the college kids lost the available internships, right? They couldn't go to JPL or whatever. And so all of a sudden, you know, their summer plans were canceled. But I've been teaching this astronomy research seminar online for about six years. And we access the uh, Las Cumbres Observatory remote telescopes through the online portal. And so it's all still doable. And so we actually had an uptick in like college kids who then came and, and did the research programs that I do. And so they still got to use telescopes. They got to use the telescopes that the professionals are using, you know, and, and still right. do their research and write up their research for publication and whatnot. So um, it's, that's been really good. And, and one of the things, and I've heard you guys talk about this, and this is along the lines of interest in astronomy is I'm really interested in trying to leverage that fascination that astronomy has for people into understanding science. Um, that's sort of one of my missions in life. <laughs> what do you mean? And, and you mean just using it as a, as a, as a conduit to 
just being interested in science in general or yeah, what do you mean? And to learning, learning the process of science. So in these astronomy research seminars that we teach, we really are teaching how science is done. Um, and so, and then hopefully that spreads to more than just astronomy, but, you know, so that we have a scientifically literate populace. Um, but, you know, if, if you can capture someone with astronomy and they're doing research and they're taking pictures of, we do double star astrometry, you know, and they, and they use these telescopes and then they learn how to communicate science. Maybe they'll want to take that into the biology that they were already, you know, thinking about pursuing or whatever, or maybe they weren't interested in STEM in science and technology and whatnot, but now maybe they're like, Oh, I can do this. Um, and that's something that I, I'm actually studying. I'm working on a PhD in astronomy education. Um, and looking at in your spare time, right? Right. It's supposed to be my full time. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, you know, really looking at is the use of telescopes. Does this help people identify as scientists and um, increase their interest and their understanding of the nature and the process of science? And um, these are really exciting questions. And boy, do we need to improve you know science literacy? And yeah. I think astronomy is a good way to do it. I think so too. I think you're in a, a unique position to do it, you know, partly because a lot of the astronomers we talk to, uh, the the passion came from science. And so it was just like, hey, I'm passionate about science. I want to learn more. And obviously, the biggest, uh, you know, open field for me to run through as a scientist is astronomy because right. it's just so wide open that you're never going to reach the end of it ever. And so there's right. more to explore there, or at least it feels that way than than anywhere else. But doesn't mean that they're necessarily amateur astronomers. And we talk to many astronomers, professional astronomers that that don't use telescopes and they don't need right. to for their jobs. Right. You know, so right. you being on both sides of it, I think you can communicate that um, in a way that, you know, a lot of people, even though they're in the professional field, may not be able to. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and I. I was a science teacher for many years. Um, and then I also I actually went to grad school many years ago and studied neuroscience. So I've been a scientist on, on the learning end. And then I've been the amateur astronomer who's just passionate about it for 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, and now I get to teach, you know, double star astrometry. And I've actually, eventually I'll do exoplanet light curves with students and whatnot. But um, I feel like I have all these different angles to and then somehow I, over the last five or six years, I've gotten very involved in, like I go and present, put on conferences at NEIF before pandemic and at AIC and the Society for Astronomical Sciences, their annual symposium. And Oh, we have a, have you guys heard of the um, RTSRE, Robotic Telescope Student Research and Education Conferences? I have not. No. I have not Oh either. my gosh. Oh my gosh. So this started in 2017 where some of us said, hey, we need to get together all the people somehow involved in remote telescope use and student research and education and start talking about where are we in, in the field? How much have we progressed since remote access to telescopes first became available? You know, what's the state of 
this sort of this kind of astronomy education. So we got together people like, um, you know, Richard Berry, who wrote AIP for when I think that's what it's called. And um, Bob Denny, of course, who wrote the ASCOM programs and, um, you know, people from Richard Berry also designed the cookbook camera. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right. (laughs) So and then we got I built one. That's why I know. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. Right. And he he wrote all the books and stuff, you know, in the beginning, you know, astronomy. That's right. Astronomy. He was the editor of Astronomy Magazine in the 70s and 80s, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we got together all these people and, and the people who run the Skynet telescope network and educators and, and had this great conference to sort of say, you know, where are we in, in this whole process? And then out of that, there came this really cool education partnership with the Las Cumbres Observatory. So they have like 22 education partners around the globe, giving access to hundreds, maybe even thousands of students to use these 0.4 meter telescopes in the Northern and Southern hemispheres to do research and imaging. And I mean, so much is possible. So much is possible. (laughs) Well, are they being used then in the, I mean, so much is possible, but are we getting effective utilization of these remote telescopes in the classroom? Absolutely. Absolutely. So for example, the astronomy research programs that I run, um, we, we use LCO, the Las Cumbres Observatory Telescopes, unless people have their own telescopes at, at their schools or whatnot. But there are, like, um, like I said, there's 22 education partners. So there's some in Africa and I think even in Tibet, I think there's a program or Nepal, actually Nepal, um, and uh-huh. all over the world using these telescopes. Um and bringing them into classrooms, bringing them into um, for uh, astronomy clubs, uh, just places that otherwise might not have access. Well, otherwise wouldn't. Who has access to a network of 0.4 meter telescopes? Not everyone. <laughs> but now wow, a lot of that's, people. Yeah. Yeah. That, so, well, okay. That This is amazing to me because, I mean, I, I can remember uh, when I was in school, plus I've met a lot of science teachers, most of the science teachers that I've come across in my, in my uh, travels have been this sense of overwhelming, uh, well, just of being overwhelmed and unable to really, with their lack of resources or whatever their school um, demands of them in other areas, to be able to have the kind of time to build in their curriculum a remote telescope uh, like, resource uh, mm-hmm. would, I, to many people I've met, would would be not really possible. But you're saying that this is that this is happening that that science teachers are able to use these remote telescopes. Yeah. in their classrooms effectively. Yes. And so actually, I mean, that's a great point. I was that science teacher for many years um, in the classroom. The where, overwhelmed one? That's yes. like, what do I do? Yeah. yeah. And, and the first time I tried to do research with my students, it, it almost failed. Luckily, you know, I had a good mentor um, that helped get through. But then actually I quit teaching so that I could become that mentor for other teachers. But literally, <laughs> I, I tend to give too much of myself, um, my free time and do things for zero. Yeah. But what I do is I teach these seminars to like high school teachers. And then I, I sort of promise them, I'll help you as long as you need to, um, to teach this to your students. And I've actually developed, we, we got a national science foundation grant for three years, um, to help develop materials. And so I have a whole canvas course on doing this little eight to 10 week research seminar, um, that I share with teachers and I, the teachers go through my program first and then they take it to their students and I'll come in and one guy, um, one teacher, uh, what was it? Brigham Young University, Idaho. He wanted to teach it to his students. And he asked me to teach the first three lectures because it was so 
intensive with with material. So I did. And then he taught it again and asked me to teach the first two lectures. Um, <laughs> and then yeah. um, so, you know, you I know that's him- what I think is is really needed is that kind of resource. Right. For teachers to call have have somebody they can call on to show them how to use this stuff. Right. 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 So. I'm working to build that big global community where teachers and educators can have those resources. Um, that's because I was the teacher that struggled, you know, to bring, bring cool research experience and telescopes to my students. You know, how do you do that? And I didn't, my degrees are in biology and neuroscience. So I sort of snuck into astronomy. Um, so I hadn't done astronomy <laughs> research, um, but now I'm good with it. Um, <laughs> so, Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, we've we've alluded to this throughout this podcast, but I'd like to bring it up officially now. The, let, can you tell us a little bit about um, the Institute for Student Astronomical Research? This is something you said is taking up most of your time. We've mentioned parts of it already, I'm sure, but tell us a little bit about what this organization is. How can can students be a part of it, and in what way? How can they join that kind of thing? Sure. Yeah. Um, so this. So I met Russ Janae, and I don't know if you guys, if that name rings a bell for you. Um, mm-hmm. It does. I've never met him, but okay. I've, 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 right. Yeah. He he, um, he wrote. He actually built and designed some of the very first uh, robotic telescopes where he was like, I'm not going to sit in the cold all night telling it where to point, telling the telescope where to go. I'm going to write some code on this little new thing called a computer. Um, and then he wrote the books on it anyway. So I met him at a conference and we started working together, um, to teach this. He had been teaching this double star astrometry, just real simple measuring the position angle and the separation of a double star pair, you know, and, and working with students to learn how to do that and use the telescopes um, in person. And he wanted to bring that online. And I had been, I had taught online before and was very involved in educational technology. So we got together and, and I tried to do that with my students with his help. Um, but then it was, it was harder than we thought. And there were lots of lessons learned, but eventually we're like, we need to start an institute. What should we call it? And we brainstormed that. And then we started having meetings with people of, you know, like-minded inclination. Um, and we just started saying what's needed. And then we eventually applied for a National Science Foundation grant. Anyway, so, and we're now a nonprofit. So the point of the Institute is sort of to be an umbrella organization under which we can teach these different astronomy research seminars. And, um, and honestly, anybody is welcome to sign up. I've had students from eighth grade all the way. We've, we've had, you know, people, members of the public, you know, that have been doing astronomy for years, take these seminars. You can just go to the infostar.org. That's I N number four star.org. Um, that's our website, but, and you can sign up for the double star astrometry course. Um, and one of the things that I'm really I really believe strongly is that this should be accessible to everyone and there shouldn't be financial barriers. So I, um, I always try and find funding for people who can't afford it. Um, plain wave instruments was actually super supportive of my program for a couple of years and, you know, basically allowed for me to provide the seminar free to whoever needed it. Um, but anyone who's really interested and I teach it three times a year, um, and I'm trying to teach teachers, to teach it. So, you know, the idea is teach people how to run the program and I'll help them for years if they need it. <laughs> um, but that's, it. and that is, yeah. So that is, this, I mean, I'm looking through the website now and there's lots of really great, uh, uh, events coming up and, um, and 
information and resources as well. So, uh, so anybody can sign up and it's, it's a, the reason I'm so interested in this is that it reminds me, and we were talking about this before we hit the record button, yeah. the, that when I started in high school, there was an organization called the IAAS, which still exists now. And they have, uh, it's run in Colorado and they have a, a Facebook page and everything else, but it's the International Association of Astronomical Studies, and it's available and open to high school students. And I was one of their first students in that, mm -hmm. and it helped me. It, it opened up the world of astronomy to me, gave me access to telescopes. Uh, my mentor is still a very good friend of mine. All, all, and and it was because of people like him, him, and what you are doing that fundamentally change a lot of lives yeah. i think yeah. in the world of astronomy yeah. and it gets them into get them into this so i think it's really important work and um i'm glad you're doing it well on your web i just want to ask you one question you yeah. you cautioned me before <laughs> we started that you're not super knowledgeable about this aspect of it so i won't go in too far but dustin and i often talk about the future of am the, the future of the hobby where do we see it going and in fact at some point we're going to record that as a dedicated episode but one of the things you have here is a cubesat astronomy link now We've had an episode way back when we first got started with uh, SpaceFab, which is a company that's using CubeSats yeah. to build an 8-inch telescope to go into space. But you're talking about that. You guys wrote a white paper. You submitted it to the Decadal Survey uh, for uh, the, the pro professional astronomers talking about using these things, not just one or two, but we're talking dozens of these things and you, a fleets of telescopes going <laughs> up there. What can you tell me about this effort? Um, because I find this very exciting and I really believe that this could be one of the maybe not so distant future of the hobby where we all get access to our own space telescope. Right. So I think you're right. I think that's where we're going. Um, and so this, we had this meeting, um, I guess that was about a year ago now, a little over a year ago, where we just really brought together all the players, um, you know, the the people de developing launch systems and and developing these small cubesats, and and um and sort of the idea was okay, can we? How can we develop? And for us, it's, there's always a, a leaning towards students, but how can we develop cubesat telescopes for students to continue to do research? Because it really, you know, we're we're never really going to reach the, the end of any, you know, the edge of any technologies. I think it's everything's going to be pushed further. So our ground base will, is always getting better, our ground based telescopes and all that. But yes, getting out into space and with the, the technology and all the CubeSats, um, I think we are going to be moving in that direction. And I know we're actually going to have another meeting, um, I think January 2022. Um, Hopefully it can be in person. Yeah, you just had one last month, or at least the, work, the, the workshop announcements on your webpage. Yeah. Oh, you know what? We need to probably remove that from the webpage. <laughs> um, oh, it didn't happen? I think it didn't happen. We were planning it, but oh, then okay. COVID got in the way. Yeah, we really wanted oh, okay. to to do one. Um, as you know, COVID has gotten in the way of a lot of things. <laughs> um, oh, indeed. <laughs> and, and I'm one of those people that overcommits. And so being the webmaster for our INSTAR Institute for Student Astronomical Research, I think I skipped, I missed that part about removing that from the webpage. <laughs> Thank you okay. for bringing it up. Um, All right. I'll, I'll, I'll edit this out. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, it's fine. This is, this is the human condition. <laughs> um, but uh, but um, I think CubeSats is a really important part. But you know what? There's also a part of me that's like, 
there's already so much stuff in the way in the night sky. It's the Starlink satellites and everything. Like, I don't think we should set anything else up there. So I'm sort of oh, torn. Yeah, I know. I know. What <laughs> so are your, what are your thoughts? So you, I think I can know what your thoughts are on that. You're not, you're not thrilled, are you, about those Starlink I satellites? I am not at all thrilled, even though... It is kind of cool to see them pass overhead, but I know enough astrophotographers and I want to be a dedicated astrophotographer, but I think I have to wait for my kids to go to college. Um, and that's not for a long time, uh, but, um, <laughs> but, um, you know, they're, they're really a problem for, well, actually not just astrophotography, but for ground-based astronomy in general, you know, they're right. in the way. Yeah, there's been many studies done that show the impact of those satellites, primarily in the dusk to dawn hours, but, but they are, uh, yeah, there's one thing to see a satellite go overhead, but you don't want to see a swarm. Right. I mean, you right. don't, you don't need that. So. And we yeah. actually, um, you know, it's funny how you talked about, uh, getting involved in an astronomy program as a student can really inspire you and, and, and change the direction of your life. We had a yeah, student, my life. right. We had a student who, who did the astronomy research seminar, not mine, but someone else's and was, you know, just brilliant and eventually wrote this really amazing um, code. And I don't understand the details of it, but to remove Starlink satellites or any satellites from your images. Um, and I know there's other people working on that, but but it'd be better if we didn't have to remove stuff from our images like that. Um, but uh, it's kind of cool to see the students go on to bigger projects after a brief introduction. Um, they get really involved and, and want to contribute more to the field or are just super excited as we are. Yeah, you know, Dustin, I don't think I've ever asked you what you thought of that. What do you, I mean, you're a, you're an avid imager, obviously, and you you do a lot of d data processing. Does these do these satellites concern you at all? This swarm of Starlink satellites coming up, forty six thousand by the time it's all over, you know. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Does that bother you at all? Uh, well, of course, I want I want the best of both worlds. I want the service it provides, but I also want them yeah, to not too. exist. <laughs> you know. Um, I <laughs> I think it's, look, it's manifest destiny, right? Like, I don't know how you get around it. It's, we have to start pushing outwards. We know that, you know, technology, humanity is at a place now where everything that's happened in this discussion has only happened in discussion for humanity in the living generations of today. None of these discussions right. ever happened before that. And you think about that, it's like, we're just, we're hitting this, this time where we are able to start reaching out. I don't think there's anything that's going to stop us from doing that. And especially not, you know, just the idea of like, hey, we, we still want access from the ground um, that we've always had. Because the truth is like that explorer built into us is going to say, yeah, but why not have access from space instead? Why not get a little bit closer? If why, why stand this far back if we can get a little bit closer to these answers? I just don't know how you turn it off. Of course, I don't want it to be there, but I don't know how you turn it off at this point. And that's a good point. I mean, I I, I hear you, and I, I I get that it's in some in some sense inevitable that this march forward, if you want to call it that, is going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and but I, and I was before talking to Rachel and seeing this this CubeSat initiative, I was like a little bit depressed about it because, <laughs> you know, this is where we keep losing our night sky in various ways. And this is just one more way, right? I think we're so, focusing on what we're but, losing though. I mean, doesn't it also give us access? Like, sure, this internet solution does not directly affect the astrophotographer other than the fact that now you can go into anywhere you want in the world and still have internet access to, you know, all of your 
programs and data and everything. But other than that, I mean, doesn't it say that like, well, what are we gaining if we start, if we keep putting things up there, if we keep expanding and pushing things out there, yes, we're filling space. And and look, I'm the last person in the world that wants that. I spend all of my free time imaging. I don't want satellites <laughs> streaking through my images ever. Um, but I, I'm thinking long term, ultimately, aren't we going to have better information about space? Aren't we going to have better access to space by taking these steps? And I think it's hard to argue that we won't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think you may be right. I mean, I, 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 I've seen the studies that show what effect these are going to have, and really, yes. the the biggest ones that are going to be affected are things like um, uh, Vera Rubin telescope and these sky these sky surveys that are you know imaging the entire it's sky. Pretty devastating every week for those, times. though. It, it's pretty tough on those. Yeah, yeah. this number of, tel- uh, of satellites up there. Exactly. And so it's, you know, it's like, it's a loss, but it can be worked around, as you know, with software and processing Mm -hmm. and things like that. So it hasn't gotten to a critical mass yet, but um, it is still something that it's, it's one of those things where we just worry about it because I've, I have an inherent distrust of any company that says, don't worry, I got this, right? I, I'll take care of it for you. I'm um, like, okay, yeah, the, well, already red this, flags though. go like, up. I mean, like I love the... Elon Musk. He's great as, <laughs> as far as characters go, but I'm, you know, am I going to trust him with my night sky? Uh, no. Right. So, you know, I get it though that it, this, what's that? I said it's going to evolve. The night sky is yeah. going to evolve. It already has. It's already evolved. And you think about it, um, for the imaging side, there's really nothing that's going to – for the science side, yes, it's a problem. It's a big problem. It really needs to be considered. And these projects have been major investments that I don't think should just be you know, squashed because somebody wants to make money in space or, or whatever it is or, or provide a new access. They have an idea. I don't think it should come at the expense of other projects. There has to be a middle ground there. But at the same time, like for the for the imager, for me trying to sit down and process my data, I don't care if there's 10 streaks in there because, look, it's not hard. We have plates. We do plate solving to find our where where we're pointing. And with those plates, we know whether or not there's supposed to be a streak in the sky right there. It's very easy for software to say, even with just two images, you know, these are where the stars are. These are where the nebulae, the galaxies, everything should be. These 15 streaks in this image don't belong there. Use the data for those pixels from the image behind it and take the streak out. And it goes away like that instantly. So I don't think that, you know, for for people that are stacking images, it's not going to change for pretty pictures. For science, it's different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here's what I think Elon Musk should do. For every (laughs) 1,000 satellites that he launches up into space, he should put one CubeSat with an 8-inch mirror on it and make it available to somebody. Right. And so, and then, then, and so let's offset this a little bit. You talk about remote telescopes. These are the (laughs) ultimate in remote telescopes, right? So, you know, I think, you know, he can do it. Just, you know, what's a CubeSat to his SpaceX Falcon 9 launches? He, he does hundreds at a time. So just throw on a CubeSat in there and tosses up a a telescope so that we can use it. And well, it'll be, it'll be a lot. We'll all be a lot happier and, 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 and subscribers to Starlink. Yeah, this is this is one of the very few times ever that you'll hear me say I would support a tax, um, but uh-huh. I th- I would support a night sky tax on companies that are going to you know as long as the money <laughs> was forced back into the real problems the Earth is facing like women in STEM and yeah. you know bringing that money back into this stuff it's like look okay look you're you're taxing humanity and our ability to see the the universe around us so you know what like okay. 
but here's what that's going to cost. It's going to cost you driving forward the sciences as a whole. You're going to have to do that. That's in order right. To do this. Very, very good. But that's well said because there is a tax. This stuff isn't free, right? The, the night sky, you know, using a resource and any natural resource is not zero cost. You don't just get to take it and then just use it without paying some kind of cost. And for too long, a lot of companies do that. So I think that's a good way to start. I'm all about that. <laughs> You know, people don't really take my opinion into consideration when they're making those laws, though. Very (laughs) rarely, Tony. I think it's only you that does. Not yet, Dustin. But when you you run for governor of California, then it'll all be be taken care of. You'll you'll take care of it for us. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. You mark my words. You heard it here first. Dustin will be governor of California probably within 10 years. Uh, That's my prediction. I'll totally (laughs) vote for him. Totally vote for him. Yeah. (laughs) Can can I ask you, I'm I'm looking at your website too. I I love what you're doing. Absolutely love what you're doing. Um, You have the research areas. You list three kind of as like the the umbrellas of what you're going to, you know, educate on. Double star astrometry exoplanet astrometry and CubeSat astronomy. Um, Which one do you see when people kind of get into one of those paths first, which one are people generally most excited about when they're given those three options? And then which one really like secures, because that's what you said you were studying, like giving people the tools to embrace that excitement and and then be brought into the sciences on a deeper level with it. Uh Which one of these really captures people? So that's a great question. Um, So the, our work in CubeSats is really new, but um, but I can tell you, exoplanets are are always more exciting than double stars. Aliens. Uh, Everybody <laughs> wants to find aliens, right? Right. No, or another a lot of home. People are interested in the exoplanets, and um, in terms of me providing courses, I, I've done some exoplanet. I have one paper with a student where we did an exoplanet transit and sort of described the, the method. We work with someone that's developed some really cool Python code to automatically tell the Las Cumbres Observatory Telescope Network, like, you know, what cadence and, and you know, when to observe to get your light curves and, and then automatically, oh, there's this incredible pipeline um, to, to deal with the data and it sort of spits out six types of photometry on every star in the field. And I mean, there's so much potential for, for student research projects there. So it's really, people are more interested in exoplanets. That's really what, what excites people, but um, it's also a little more difficult. And what I'm really interested in is sort of not the people that are already like, I'm going to be an astrophysicist and I'm going to be an astronaut and, and I can already write Python code and whatnot, but, People that maybe this is, they, they don't even have an astronomy background, um, but astronomy sounds cool to them. And here's something that they can get into that they can do in a semester in school. So the double star astrometry, that's, you know, that's what I teach three times a year. That's what I help other teachers teach. And it's a, a you know, I've worked with a lot of teachers who also do the exoplanet ones and a strong feeling is often the double star astrometry is a great place to start because it's the simplest to collect data, to analyze the data and to learn how to write and learning how to write is, is the most challenging part of it. Um, we almost always end with our seminars with a publication in the journal of double star observations. Um, and so students are really learning how to communicate their science. Um, and so Yes, exoplanets are more exciting, but 
in terms of really completing a project, going through the whole scientific process, including writing a paper and presenting your research. Um, it's the astrometry, double star astrometry that we focus on. Yeah, that makes sense because I can imagine a transiting, you know, an, an exoplanet transit trying to measure that for the first time after not do, trying to do anything else. I mean, you're trying to look for a dip in brightness that's about a billionth of the of the, the total star brightness. So you really need some good astrometry to be able to see that. So that's probably not a great way to start out. So uh, I could see that being a challenge for sure. Yeah, yeah. But there's definitely, you know, um, people that do the exoplanet ones too. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's it, and that was a, that was a part of the hobby that wasn't even. I mean, that wasn't even a science twenty five years ago. I mean, so right. this is brand new stuff. So. Yeah. Right. Now you hear right. something right. about it every single day. There's like a new announcement every day about that stuff now. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's it's really interesting how the fields evolve. Um, actually, even the double star astrometry, we're we're going to be moving to speckle interferometry within probably the next year. Um, so you know, taking these millisecond images and taking a thousand of them and having a Fitz cube that you have to do some fancy Fourier transformations on and whatnot, um, because we were interested that technology is always getting better and we want to get double stars that are closer to each other and we need higher resolution. So, um, so it's always going to be changing and moving to the, you know, the next level. Um, so, yeah, we but we but I also want it to be accessible to the most people. That's that's a tricky balance. Well, I'd like to with the few minutes of time that we have left with you, I, I don't get a chance to talk to many science educators, and so one these days anyway, I used to be able to talk to quite a few, but I uh, haven't talked to any in quite a while. And one of the things I'd like to get your thoughts on is you mentioned earlier that you're driven to improve science literacy and that by, by showing people astronomy, we, we can get them interested in, in science in general. What is your feeling in this day and age that we live in? Where, and, and I think you'll see where I'm going with this yeah. in a minute. But the, the, what, are your, what are your feelings on the current state of science literacy, not just among our students, but also among the adults? Um, are you optimistic about it do you think things are okay or do you think there's problems <laughs> i know i'm leading you into this but yes oh my gosh it's it's embarrassing <laughs> the lack of scientific understanding and the lack of scientific literacy but literacy in general in terms of like understanding where knowledge comes from where information comes from um i i'm i'm always an optimistic person so I, I say, let you know, we can do things to make it better, but the state of it now is terrible. <laughs> that's my opinion. <laughs> and do you think that's because of, is it, is it a school issue? Is it an education? And forget the pandemic. I know that right. presents a lot of very specific problems. I'm talking right. about beyond that. Right. Um, is it, it, where do you think the problem lies and where science literacy is right now? Yeah. Um, Honestly, I I think it comes down to to funding, funding education at a level. I mean, it it's not just pay teachers a little bit more money. It's like restructure all of education, pay them a lot more money and train them a lot better um, and have, you know, oh, gosh, it gets to be a really big, big question, um, but important. I don't think there's any more important question, but how do we make it better? Um, you know, there's a lot of programs that 
try to diversify for student needs. I think that's something that needs to be addressed more. Um, but I, I also am in the School of Education at Sonoma State University and work on programs to help train math and science teachers and, and recruit them. And recruitment is a huge problem. We have so few. So we're so you know, under the numbers we need for science teachers. And so what are the things that can fix that? Well, they, they need to be compensated well and trained well. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's exactly right. And, and valued in, in a, as a valued member of, of society, we don't seem to value this stuff. I thought about going into teaching after I started, you know, after I left the Institute and I started to think about where I was going to go over the next few years, I thought about going into teaching, but my gosh, I looked at what the workday was like and what the, what, you know, what I would be asked to do and how much of it was actually going to be in motivating students. And I was just like, no way I'm not doing that. Um, so it, it is not an attractive option to go into education at all. And, and so, but, but, but if funding were such a big deal and it is, it is a deal, uh, but it really depends on where you are in the country, don't you? Because all education in the United States is funded locally. So where the schools in California get a, I would, I'm a, a different amount of money. I don't know if it's more or less than what the schools here in Florida get. And so we would see then, wouldn't you think an increase in science literacy among the better, more affluent, uh, school districts than the poor ones. And do we see that? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think we do to some extent, but you know, you know, what shocked me was when I was bef- when I was still in the classroom and got involved in educational technology, even in Silicon Valley, where you would think every student has access to computers and internets and the latest okay. technology. Oh my gosh, there were schools without computers. And th- you know, this was like five and six years ago. This was, it was really heartbreaking actually. Um, so Yes, there are the rich school districts and the not rich school districts, and that's going to have a huge impact on the education. Um, and I mean, it does. And it, there's inequality, you know, across the country in this in this, you know, area. And I. OK, now I'm starting to feel pessimistic about it. I don't know. <laughs> all right. All right. We'll stop there. I, no, this, this is, is something I think a lot about. Yeah, and so I yeah. wonder, you know, as an educator, I wondered what, you know, what challenges you face. And I, I'm getting a sense of what they are. Now. Yeah. So, well, uh, but actually, I have something else that that you might find interesting about that. Um, you know, I've been in education for for over 20 years now and, you know, and, and a teacher in the classroom. And I've taught in, at Stanford University online high school. And, you know, I, I have a master's degree in neuroscience of all things and I'm getting a Ph.D. And yet with all this education background, I have a son who is a special needs child um, that and I couldn't find schooling that worked for him. I eventually had to pull him out of school because there were not resources, not people, not programs that could address his specific, the way he learns. And so he is homeschooled. He's, you know, I guess he's a freshman this year. I sort of lose track because we just learn stuff, but he's going to be a world-class expert in snakes and other reptiles and amphibians and edible plants um, and cactus. And I mean, he's in mushrooms. He's just this incredible biologist that has flourished, but you know, with all my experience in education, 
education didn't work for him. And I know he's not alone. <laughs> the education yeah. system didn't work for him. Well, yeah. And my experience with homeschooled kids outside the religious context was right. that they knew they were some of the best educated uh, students who most prepared for college right. I'd ever seen. Right, right. So, you know, it's great. Yeah. Well, right. I mean, look at the education that he's getting. You, you taking his passion, you know, the, the one I told you would terrify me for <laughs> yes. snakes. And yeah. it's like he can explore the things that matter to him in a way that yeah. the classroom environment would never, you know, I, I, I don't know how, how it could be practical for everybody to, to be able to do that. But at home, you can. And so, I mean, I, I think that it'd be amazing if there was a way to to push things that direction in public yeah. schools. Um, yeah. But yeah, I have no doubt that, you know, that's a tremendous advantage to be able to just find the things that you really care about and just go all in on those things. You're right. It, it creates experts. Yeah. I mean, and it's like me with astronomy, I'm completely self-taught, but, you know, by listening to everyone's podcasts and reading books and whatnot, but um, it's my passion. And when you find your passion, um, you can become that expert. Um and, and it really doesn't now, take that long when people no, find something that, that they're just in love with. Right. It's like, yeah, yeah. You yeah. can become an expert overnight yeah. by just obsessing over it. Yeah, totally, totally, totally. And those of us with special needs, we can obsess really well. <laughs> um, I, I think I obsess about things, um, yeah. but it's funny because, you know, within two years, he was then invited into classrooms to speak about reptiles and things. You know, he couldn't be in a classroom and learn stuff, but he could yeah. come in and teach stuff. Um, Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So, but, you know, that's what I want to provide also for, for the, you know, there are large numbers of students like that for whom astronomy is their passion. And if you can just give them, point them in the right direction and give them the beginning skills and let them have a successful, super fun life. You know, that's one way to help out. With a few minutes that we have left, let me just, I want to ask something to both of you, um, because we were talking about the effect of education and, and how, and you know, what, what are, what's needed to improve things. And since both of you and I, myself included, we all use social media quite a bit. And so do astronomers and, we, you know, science communication is out there. Mm -hmm. As a whole, overall, on balance, do you think social media helps our kids or hurts it? <laughs> I think it depends on the kid. Um, I really do. My son has learned most of what he knows from, you know, YouTube and then exploring every day for years on his own. But social media has helped him become a real expert. Um, my daughter is on TikTok all the time, and I'm not sure that that's so educational. <laughs> Although I think if we can, if we can just embrace those social media things that the kids are on and educate through that, I think that is one way to address this, you know, what is your passion um, and how can we teach you through it? I've watched some um, TikTok videos with about astronomy and I'm like, that is really cool. You, if kids are interested, they can you know, on the platform they're already on, they can learn something there. Dustin, do you have any thoughts on that? I would just, I mean, I know that you're a big advocate of Instagram, especially with imaging, and it certainly helps the hobby. Um, and from a business perspective, there's a lot of advantages to social media. But what about education? Do you, do you have any thoughts on that, on what you think effect it has on kids? You know, when you said this, I thought, man, I can't believe I haven't explored this in my own mind more than, more than I have. Um, so I just have to kind of give you my my instinct here. I, I, man, I'm so torn about it because 
I think it's kind of like with anything else, the people that want to find, you know, the, the information or the education through social media can, I mean, I, I personally have a lot of friends that I see do amazing things on social media. Take Travis Burke. He's been on this podcast multiple times. You know, he makes his living on social media and teaching people how to take better care of the earth. He's an adventure photographer who just has a passion for, you know, stopping things like littering and, and, you know, going to national parks and people that are just kind of destroying the parks. And he's like all about protecting the earth. And, and that's what he wants to educate people on. And he uses the platform 100% to the, to do that. And he sticks only to that. And so people that find his account, it's hard for me to say that's a negative thing, but then so much of what I see on social media, it's, um, I just don't know how it really benefits anyone. And I think it builds a lot of insecurity into, you know, especially into young people, um, seeing a lot of the fake lives. I mean, there's so much of about it. That's just, there's nothing authentic about it. And yeah, that part's really challenging. And how do you really, how do you isolate the good from the bad when it's something like Instagram or Reddit or, or any of this stuff, you know, these, right these places where people come to, to spread information at. And I don't know, I think all in all, it's, it's gotta be a good thing because the people that want information can find it. And I think those are the people that are ultimately the, the ambitious are the ones that are going to get where they're going. Anyway, they have a plan, they know what they're interested in. They found that passion or, or at least they're looking for that passion. And so they're searching for these things. And that's what, I mean, that's what I use it for. I mean, I, I, on the, you know, I get criticized all the time because, you know, I, I, I follow like, a handful of people on there. It's mainly because I don't want to see all the other stuff. And I really just follow my, my staff. (laughs) And so so it's like the only thing I ever see on there is, you know, astronomy stuff, but that's what I use it for is a platform to go connect with other astronomers, have that engage in that conversation, see what I can learn from them and see where I can be of assistance to them. Um, So I don't know. I think all in all, it's a good thing that it exists. It's just, it's misused frequently. Yeah, I mean, I'm 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 the first to, to admit the internet is a tool. You, you it, it's something you can either use for good or bad. Um, but the, the internet has changed quite a bit, and with these social media platforms, so it's become less of a tool and more of a pitfall for people who yeah. fall into these algorithms. And before they know it, their their attention is being so. Um, command commandeered that they that they can't really get much else done and that is to me i think the biggest pitfall of social media and the internet in an educational realm we yeah. have got to be able to focus to learn we've got to be able to think critically about what we're learning and if our attention is constantly being diverted to all these different things i think that does harm i worry about my, even my own sons who are out there now very active in social media to the point where can they actually focus on something for longer than just a few minutes? And then I ask myself, well, is that really all that necessary? And I, I have to say, I think it is. I think it is important that for critical thinking, you actually take some time to reflect on the things that you're learning and, and put it into context. And so that's where I think most of the harm is, but it's also like both of you said, there's good things to it. There's bad things to it. And I don't know, man, I'm just worried that this, you know, that these algorithms are (laughs) before you know it going to be commanding our lives and all of our attention. So 
It's making me more and more nervous by the day. It feel, it all feels very Orwellian to the point where literally this week I just went back and read Animal Farm and then 1984 oh. is, oh is on the <laughs> yeah. next because I was just thinking like there's so there's such a level of it's not influence anymore. It's control of information in a lot of ways and actively expressed. And that's something that I think is very, I mean, it's dangerous. It's dangerous that, you know, it is these trusted platform. I mean, we clearly trust platforms if we're putting all of our personal information on there. And I mean, we're telling people things about our lives when we're on vacation and, and people have insight into us. You know, you even see that with things like this podcast. It's a it's a conversation where I love when I meet people who listen to the podcast, but you realize very quickly that the people you meet know more about you than you do them because they've heard you right. talk for 40 hours. You right. Know? Right. And so social media is that to the extreme. It's like people can know a lot about your life. And so I think that it's hard to judge something simply on its potential because how people use that potential is ultimately what's going to matter. But I don't, I don't know, Tony. I think that it can be one of the greatest assets of humanity, a way to bring people together and share information. And ultimately, it's what we're all trying to do. It's how we started this podcast. How do we take yeah. this perspective that we have that we feel is important and share it with other people? Social, social media is the greatest vehicle to do that. Yeah. yeah. It's but probably it, going to be the best thing we've ever done and the worst. And thing the we've worst. Ever done. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. wow. Okay. Well, can we close out the podcast, uh, Rachel, with some advice from you on, so let's say yeah. some students are listening yeah. uh, and they want to get more involved in astronomy. They want to maybe join your outfit or maybe they just want to learn more. What advice would you give somebody who's thinking, you know, astronomy is kind of cool? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, absolutely um, connect with people. So um, you know, join the local astronomy club. And I know that it's going to be online meetings right now, <laughs> but um, you know, and, and really there's so much you can learn, but perseverance, it's really perseverance, find, find what your, your passion is. And if that's astronomy, you know, connect with other people, find them on the different social media platforms um, and really connect and, and mentorship is, is so crucial to, to really, the learning process and, and finding the next step and figuring out, you know, whether you're going to be the astrophotographer or you're going to, you know, go and show people the night sky and teach, you know, teach them everything that's out there, you know, in the constellations or whatever, but um, persevere and know that, that there are other people like you that have this passion and would love to talk to you now for students if you you know want to get involved in some simple astronomy research you know join the institute for student astronomical research go online you can connect with me through there and and i'll you know point you in whatever direction you need to go um and just kind of stay curious there you yeah. go. I love that. Okay, stay curious. <laughs> All right, Rachel, where I sincerely hope from the bottom of my heart that you are able to find stuff to do. I know you're not very busy, <laughs> so um, I, I hope you can find something to fill your time. But uh, in the meantime, in the meantime <laughs> I didn't even I tell you. you guys half the things I do. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling there's a lot there, yeah. <laughs> All right, so Rachel Freed, she runs the Institute for the Student of Astro for Student Astronomical Research. Uh, check out her website in fourstar.org. That's a number four. And uh, and check out her, all the stuff she's doing. Uh, Rachel, thank you so much for taking time to be 
on our humble podcast. And we hope you'll come back because I got a lot of a lot of things I didn't even ask you about that I wanted to, to go into. So I hope you'll consider coming back. Oh my gosh, I will. This was so much fun. I think I could talk to you guys for hours. So thank you. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. So on behalf of Dustin Gibson, I'm Tony Darnell. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk is produced by Deep Astronomy and sponsored by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California. Please visit our website at spacejunkpodcast.com. Also, please send any questions and comments or ideas for new episodes to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com. <laughs>